Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to DNI Spy, the weekly podcast which uncovers what's really going on in the world of diversity and inclusion. I'm Dr. Julie Humphreys. And I'm Natasha Whitehurst. In today's episode, we are talking about two topics which are interlinked. We're talking about Manchester Pride and also intersectionality. And we are super excited because we're joined by not one, but two guests today. So we have Dr. Christopher Owen, who is Manchester Pride's Inclusivity Development Manager. Christopher is an expert in intersectional systemic oppression and young people's contemporary literature and media. And we then also have Fahana Heimani, who is Manchester Pride's Head of Engagement and is responsible for developing the engagement strategy that builds relationships with a really diverse range of stakeholders. A huge welcome to you both. Great. Thank you so much for having us today. It's great. It's such an honour to be on the podcast and be able to come and talk about the work we're doing, but also just, yeah, just talk about diversity and inclusion. What a great chance that we've got. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here and I, I'm really excited to, to get into it. Awesome. Awesome. And thank you for coming in um, in person as well. We love it when people come in person to the studio. So thank you so much. Okay, so uh, let's get straight into it and tell us a little bit about Manchester Pride. Where did it start? How did it start? How did you get involved? Yeah, so Manchester Pride has a very long history. Um, it started back in the 1980s as a HIV fundraiser um, and it stemmed from the gay village. Um, we were just talking about its history yesterday, actually, and it, it, I can't remember the full name. Christopher, you might be able to help me with that. It was like the Manchester Pub and Club Olympics, it was. Um, and that's where it kind of began. And from then, it's it's been a number of different iterations you then had Mardi Gras Gay Fest um Europride in 2003 um and then in 2006 2007 we became a registered charity um and we became Manchester Pride um in its current iteration which also has gone through so many different changes um it's been an incredible journey looking back at like the history of the organization and it feels like such a privilege to be able to be a part of that now especially now because it just seems it's always vital but particularly now it feels vital and that we exist so I joined the organization back in 2019 um, and I came in as the engagement manager and at the time we were really really well known for Manchester Pride Festival which happens on August Bank Holiday weekend and but nobody really knew what else we did. Mm. Nobody really understood kind of the benefit that we provided to our communities. Um, so one of the kind of big pieces of work that I started off with was looking at kind of what do we develop as year-round projects um, and how do we make sure that we're connected to our communities, we're listening to our communities and those voices are being amplified and platformed as much as possible. Um, and that's kind of been my journey over the last four years, developing projects that support our communities, developing initiatives that, you know, particularly around diversity and inclusion in the workplace, um, which we'll talk more about, I'm sure. 
Um, but yeah, so it's it's been a it's been a really long potted history. But I feel like where we're at now is really kind of that expansion, that growth, and thinking about how do we best serve our communities. So so Pride started many years ago as as um, a protest, didn't it? Uh, do you feel that Manchester Pride is moving back towards that now, or is it still really a celebration? It's both. <laughs> it's protest and it's celebration. And I think both of those things go hand in hand, really. Um, we are here to campaign for LGBTQ plus rights and campaign for change. Um, we're also here to celebrate LGBTQ plus people and queer expression and make sure that they that exists and that people can thrive. So I do think both of those things go really hand in hand and it's really important for us to, to recognise that. I'm sure Christopher would want to add there as well. I just think it's, it's really important to recognise that we live in a world that tells LGBTQ plus people that we cannot and should not exist um, in a variety of subtle and explicit ways. And so by celebrating our identities, our expression, our culture, we are pushing back against that narrative. So the celebration is a protest. Um, and so, yes, we do things that are more, quote unquote, stereotypical, what you would think of as protest. And we do a lot of campaign work. Uh, we have um, I Choose Kindness, which is a, a, an anti-hate crime campaign. So we do that work for sure. Um, but then we also... Um, do a lot of like queer arts and culture year-round celebration things uh through our superbia sort of work and so that 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 insistence we do exist and we're happy to exist and we're proud to exist is pushing against the shame and the um the erasure that our oppression creates so it's interesting that when i was reading about manchester pride that in 2018 um you were the first pride in the uk to adopt the black and brown stripes for the rainbow flag mm -hmm. so tell me a little bit about it so slightly before your time Vahana, but um maybe maybe christopher you also have some thoughts about it because it was it, that was a big thing yes. all those years ago it was and is actually a really big part of my journey in terms of when i started at manchester pride um when I think about where I was in 2018 and was where I was working at the end of the experiences I was having as a woman of colour, um, I remember seeing the news and seeing the statement that our chief executive made at the time. It was an incredibly bold and brave decision to do. And actually, it's a shame to describe it in that way, but it was bold and brave. Um, and it was about stepping out and saying, we really need to make platform this and amplify this and make sure that, you know, marginalized voices are right at the front of what we're doing um and it was huge and it it didn't come without um negativity it didn't come without um difficulty but i think it's been an incredible journey to to see how much it has kind of flourished from that point because now the progress flag is used it is the flag that is used and people understand it more. And actually what happened at the time was that it created conversation and, it and a conversation that really, really needed to happen about what are the experiences of the more marginalised voices in our communities um, and how are we not doing enough or what, are we, what do we need to do more of? Um, and I think it started that conversation, which was exactly what it needed to do. And as you know, that was the aim. It was the desire to make sure that not only were we putting that on the platform and we were saying this, but that we were starting that conversation and getting people to think about those experiences a lot more. I would agree that it, it was one of the key reasons I joined Manchester Pride. Um, uh, 
I, I, I had been working in the LGBTQ plus sector before this role, and I hadn't been impressed with the level of anti-racism work that was going on within the sector. And um, I was really impressed with the way that Manchester Pride was was, was taking a role of leadership in, in pushing that conversation forward, but also more than just conversation, action, um, and really and really doing things to make change. And um, I think it is uncomfortable when you're already from a marginalized community to 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 look at your own community and go, oh, we're actually we're not we're not actually you know a great utopia within ourselves either. Um, that's hard to do, and um, especially if you're feeling attacked from all sides from the rest of society anyway. So to to be um, to be fighting for your own community, but also reflective of there are members of my community that we're not fighting for that we need to um, is is like a a powerful thing to do and a beautiful thing to do actually mm-hmm. i think it's a i think it's it really is the, the heart of what community means right so um yeah I'm, i it, it's just to, to echo what you said it, it's what brought me on board as well absolutely and i think it really stemmed from lived experience as well like we have a black gay man as our chief executive and so it was lived experience it was um that kind of sense of belonging um, and needing to do something about that and step out and say something. And as I said, it didn't come without challenge. It absolutely did. And that's why I say it was brave and bold to do that. But it, it leads to me to go on to talk about why representation matters so much when we are talking about leadership, when we're talking about people in power. Because I think without that sense and understanding of lived experience, if we don't get that those conversations... We don't. We won't be able to move those decisions forward. We won't be able to take those actions, and the ripple effect it's had has been huge. And over the last five, six years, we've seen more of the conversation happening. We are seeing more of a, a kind of focus on anti-racism. And I would say that five, six years ago, although it was there and we knew about it, I'm not sure how much of that was being focused on, and how much of it were we actually talking about within the LGBTQ plus space as well. I um I just want to come in there because I think um we often talk on the podcast about you know taking things back to basics and you know we 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 can often find people get you know we both work in kind of more kind of corporate environments you know we're we're faced with people who have you know a great understanding of um the LGBTQ plus community um but the other end of then you know there are people that maybe have less understanding. And so, you know, when we think that, you know, we're here talking about Manchester Pride and everything that you're doing, which is awesome, um, and the kind of the other work work that happens around that, um, you know, lots and lots of organisations right now will be gearing up for a full month of activity in June for Pride Month. Um, I guess I'd be keen to understand, if you can, can you bring to life, you know, why why is this kind of full month of kind of recognition for June? And, and I guess then thinking more locally for yourselves what happens in the other 11 months and I guess what the difference would be between your kind of June activity and that kind of um, the bigger kind of pride activity that happens bank holiday in August. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think um, there's a few questions there. So I'll start off with like, why is Pride Month important? Um, and I think um, I think you can flip it around really succinctly of if June is is Pride Month, then like every other month in the year is 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 quote unquote straight month then right like it's it's the way that the automatic norm in our society is that you're cisgender and heterosexual 
Um, it's why LGBTQ plus people, quote unquote, come out of the closet and straight and cis people don't, right? Like it's this automatic assumption and the way that our society is structured, the way that we think, the way that we talk to one another and treat one another um, is, is all based on that assumption. And that's not necessarily hate. That's not necessarily homophobia. It's not, I, I hate gays. That's not the, the vibe there. It's a, a it, but it is a, like a systemic erasure of LGBTQ plus people. And so if you ask me if I have a girlfriend or if you assume my pronouns, that's the erasure of my queer identity, even if you don't mean any harm by it. And so the reason we have things like Pride celebrations, Pride Month, LGBT History Month, etc., 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 is to reinforce in society: No, we do exist. We are here. Don't forget. Like, and um, and that could be done in a variety of ways. And so the nice thing about Pride Month is it gives people the the flexibility, the opportunity to 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 do that in their way. Whether that be having a keynote speaker come into your organization, or marching in a parade, or going out to a drag show, whatever it might be that best suits your organization or your your team um you can do it in your way but the point should be to 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 i guess twofold one recognize that lgbtq plus people exist and then be celebrate that right like even in society when we we know oh yeah of course there are gay people or there are trans people or they're bi people whatever we're not like thrilled about it we're not like pumped up about it, we're, we're tolerating it, or we acknowledge that it's behind somewhere else, behind the curtain, but it's not it's not something that we want to, like, relish in and take, um, we use the term at Manchester Pride, unrivaled pleasure in, right? Like, really, really thrilled about it. Um, and that's what Pride is about. So the value of Pride Month, for example, as opposed to maybe LGBT History Month is, this is an opportunity to be proud, be really excited. Yeah, and just in addition to that, I'd say, we're here all year round so Manchester Pride exists all year round so Pride is all year round and that's something that I go out and talk a lot about is that it's great to have Pride Month it really is you know it adds value because there's a spotlight there's a focus there's that kind of media attention on there so those voices are being kind of on the forefront and you're getting um, a sense and an understanding of that lived experience a lot more in those time periods and obviously the bank holiday is when we do our huge festival and we're you know huge opportunities for LGBTQ plus artists but also for LGBTQ plus communities to come together and celebrate and protest um what I would say is though is that pride should exist all month every month and and, and, and as organizations and as individuals we should be thinking about that as part of what do we do? What actions do we take? So it's great to have that spotlight. It's great to have those moments. But what else is happening in other months that we could be focusing on it? Because LGBTQ plus people exist all year round. <laughs> um, and that's not to say to remove any of that, um, you know, the celebration as Christopher mentioned, but in those months, but to really consider what what do we actually mean by that? When we do that, what happens? Are we saying the rest of the year isn't a part of that and we don't need to focus on it? Um, I think it's just important to remind ourselves that Manchester Pride exists all year round and Pride exists all year round. And you're both involved in something called the All Equals Charter. So tell us more about that. Absolutely. So it's actually one of the reasons why kind of my role started to exist because after the the kind of announcements around the progress flag and you know I mentioned it was very much from lived experience from our chief executive um Mark really went away and considered 
what are the experience intersectionally of our communities and we need to gather this and need to understand this better so we did a huge consultation at the time to not only look at what does it mean to be lgbtq plus but to look at what does it mean to be lgbtq plus and um and think about it intersectionally and through that consultation we i think we found and this is back in 2018 and it will be very different now i would say but 40% I think of LGBTQ plus people had faced discrimination in addition to their sexual identity or their gender identity um, which is huge mm. um, and so we were like something has to happen we need to understand this better and we need to kind of look at what we as an organization need to do and that's where the all equals charter stemmed from um, and it kind of developed with kind of commitments and principles and values that specifically looked at the intersectional experience of lgbtq plus people and it was about going into businesses and organizations and actually at the start to look at who manchester pride works with who we partner with and how do we make sure that the people that are coming and marching in the parade the people that are a part of our organizations our sponsors etc that they're committed to this, really. And living your values as and, well. Yeah, and they're living our values. Um, and so then when I came on board, I started to develop the project, basically. Took the foundations that were already there and had started to grow. Took that consultation and started to create a program. Um, and the program has expanded <laughs> over the years, which I will absolutely let Christopher talk more about because that is his role. <laughs> yeah, so my my key role at Manchester Pride was to, is to develop... Um, and then deliver the All Equals Charter. So when I first started, um, two, year goes, two years ago today, actually. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, so when I first started, the the thing that made me know, like, oh, this is going to be a good job, was uh, Fahana saying to me in my induction, I want you to look at the charter, and then I want you to, to really critique it. Look at what needs developing. Look at look at where it needs to grow. Um, which, which was so exciting for me coming into a role, not just getting handed something, but getting to work with something. And... Um, and so we did, we had a look at it and um, and I did a, a lot of research on just the field of equality, diversity and inclusion and and looking at um, where certain traditional practices maybe weren't being as effective as possible or there were some gaps in understanding. And really, we, we identified that one of the key things that will support organizations with being more successful in their intersectional inclusion journey is to think about, well, what's the root cause of exclusion? What's causing discrimination, right? Rather than tackling those issues, get to the root source, which is is systemic oppression, right? It's it's institutional, it's cultural, it's, it's much more structural, and so we developed things further to really to really connect with those issues. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, so systemic oppression um, in its simplest terms is about how easily or difficult you can access opportunity. That's that's really simplifying it. So that opportunity might be having your pronouns assumed correctly and then respected. That opportunity might be walking down the street at night and feeling safe. That opportunity might be, I don't know, uh, going to school and um, knowing that your teachers are going to support your culture and your language and you're, you're going to have a great attainment opportunity. It might be going for a job interview and getting a job or getting a promotion or whatever, right? So like it could be the glass ceiling. There's all kinds of different barriers to opportunity or uh, that can be simple minor everyday things to really complex life altering life risking things so that's systemic oppression as a whole um and then uh 
in organizations that can look like a variety of things. So for example, um, an organization might report that they have really great diversity statistics. They might say like, oh yeah, we've got like 37% people of color in this organization and just throw that number out there into the world and, and everyone will clap and celebrate. Mm. Like, good job. It's those good old targets. Yeah. So you've, achieved a target, you, you've, you've sorted you out. But then we haven't looked at, mm. all right, well, what role do those 37% of, pe- mm. of, of people of color have? And then when, when you actually dive into it, they have the lowest paid roles, the least secure roles, the roles that have the least amount of decision making um, or leadership. And then the roles that do have all, all of the power are white men again. And so actually all you've done in that organization is recreated a microcosm of white supremacy, right? You haven't thought about why are we hiring diverse people? Actually, it's to it's to root out systemic racism. It's to push back against that history. Um, and so really the, the diversity targets are there so that we can have black decision makers and people of color who are leaders and, and really really start to change those historic power hierarchies for the better for, for, for all people. And so having having an understanding of, oh, there's a systemic issue and we're doing this because of that systemic issue and we're trying to overcome that systemic issue in, in the inclusion initiatives that we're implementing creates a more clear direction. It creates an understanding of goals. It creates a, an understanding of targets. And now your diversity targets aren't, we need 37% people of color. It's we need 37% leaders of color, for example. So can you give us some examples then um, and, and take us through your charter? Do you go out to, so do, you, do you go out to all businesses? How, do they come to you? How does that work? So we, it's both really. So we have, um, we have our partners and our organizations who might be working with Manchester Pride generally and they go through the charter process. But we also... Is it pat or fail? Is it like... Or, so there's four do? rounds of... Okay. Um, so there's the accreditation, which is the main part of it, um, which is where we go in and we assess. There's an assessment form. We go in, we work with them, we collaborate with them to understand where they're at and what the kind of what concerns they may have, what they want to develop further. And then we've got four categories that you'd be assessed on. There'd be an auditing process. I hate using that word because it makes it sound <laughs> I was going to say that's like the worst word in the world, isn't it? When people hear audit, oh my goodness. We're not Ofsted. <laughs> um, so we, we call it the assurance review. Um, and so we go in and we assess, um, which is Christopher's role. And we have four markers, which you can go from... Um, either kind of right at the beginning which is entry level entry level and then we've got foundation um, which means that you might have some things in place but you're not kind of using that yet um, so you've got some policies you've got some procedures in place but actually they're not in action um, and then you've got good practice which is exactly you have got all the things that you need in place and there's just, there's various different categories that we're looking at when we're assessing so the policies and processes a supply chain your staff um lots of other categories that we kind of go into in a lot more depth um and then you've got role model which is basically where you're pushing the boundary of edi you're pushing what the normal standard is right now but you're taking that further and you're asking those systemic questions you're and you're actually getting into the why the root causes and so that's kind of the process um and kind of how you would be assessed and we have various other programs around that so for example if an organization comes to us and they're like we want to do this but we have nothing in place we're kind of we know we'd be entry level if we get accredited we have a get started program and that program is about 
just going through it with them and looking at what do you need to have in place what things do you need to get just the bare basics the foundations um, and supporting them with that and we have a real approach around collaboration one of the things we really wanted to remove was this sense of you're doing something wrong because I think instantly that puts people's backs up and it makes people feel like they don't know how to be vulnerable in those spaces and what we really really need is vulnerability it's back to that systemic oppression that christopher was talking about that these things are existing but maybe not on purpose exactly exactly and getting people to understand that it's not we have individual um power and that we it's our you know our decisions are important in that but also there are bigger systemic institutional things that are happening that we need to get to the cause of so having a space where you can collaborate with us and you can work with us is really important and being able to be vulnerable and know that it's okay it's okay if you don't have the answers it's okay if you don't know exactly how to say things one of the biggest things we get because we're, we're obviously talking about lgbtq plus inclusion particularly is what language to use um, how, how do we phrase things and people instantly have that fear and anxiety and what we really want to do is is to get people to to bring people down from that and to know that it's okay it's okay you know at times we are going to get things wrong we're human beings we're not going to get it right all the time yeah we have a lot of listeners who um, often question language and one of our most listened to episodes actually talking about the word queer Yes. Um, and we've had a lot of feedback around it. And, you know, as I say, it's one of the most listened to. Can I just ask you a question about your charter, though? Do you feel like you're in competition with Stonewall Index or do you feel like that you're differentiated enough that um, that, that it's that the two can coexist? I think they can absolutely coexist. I think they do different things. Um, Stonewall is excellent. Um, and I would I really encourage organizations to look at Stonewall and see if that's the right fit for their organization. I think they're brilliant. The, the All Equals Charter um, is different in that we, I think we're really hands-on. I think one of, I think the approach with the All Equals Charter is we will look at, like Vahana was saying, where are you at? Where are you at on your inclusion journey? And then what's your next step? Right. Where do we go next? And so we're not going to slap you on the wrist for not having something. We're not going to tell you off. We're just going to give you that guiding support for for your next steps. Um, and so like a lot of what we do is we will have like focus groups with your staff. We come into the organization, really like walk around your office, really get a feel for it, really get to know you. So it's it's got that really like personal touch. So um Stone, Stone will do a really, really brilliant work that's, I think, really large scale, really, really high scale. We'll get into the, like, personal side of it, I think. And also when, you know, we're talking about, like, the systemic piece as well, um, a big part of what we do as an organisation is that co- kind of connection between corporate and community and bridging those gaps. Because I really do believe if you've lived experience and understanding lived experience, it's one of the best ways to get people to empathise. Um, and so because we're so uniquely placed as Manchester Pride as an organisation and we're so connected to our communities, we are in a position where we can connect organisations a little bit more with that lived experience and um, connect with community groups and create kind of coalitions and support between corporates and, and community. And bridging that gap is incredibly important so that we take the concepts of EDI from being this, you know, theoretical piece to being more about the people and like who is this affecting? Because the more that we can bring that conversation in, the more that we can focus on that, I think we will just see a bit of a shift in understanding and a bit of a shift in why it matters. And when we're going to, you know, what we really want to do is remove and again take away from that 
statistical side you know the numbers and the a, a person is a number but actually think about the whole person and what do they bring and that is why the intersectional piece is incredibly important because what happens when we put people in our boxes of lgbtq plus or a person of color is that we're taking things away rather than we're it feels like it's really affirming and it feels like it's really great to have that representation and it absolutely is but it's also really important to challenge that and go what does that actually mean when we put the boxes in place because what we're doing is we're just creating more further barriers we're just creating a further sense of you have to fit within this and what we want EDI to be doing is how do we make people feel like they belong how do we actually take those boxes away and start thinking of people as a whole and I think part of feeling like you belong is about feeling connected and so I think um one of the key things that maybe distinguishes us from Stonewall is um we're not just looking at your internal practices. We want to look at your external practices and we want to facilitate that as well. We are really connected with our local community. That's our that's our responsibility as a pride organization. So we will work with our clients on what are the local grassroots organizers that you could be supporting, working with, collaborating with. Um, you were mentioning earlier about people feeling really nervous about language, getting things wrong. It's the, it's the number one thing that I get with the professionals I work with is people are so afraid of getting things wrong that they do nothing at all. They, they won't talk to any marginalized communities for fear of saying something offensive. Well, that means you're not hiring them. It means you're not promoting them. It means you're not working collaboratively with them. So we need to break through that boundary. And so the piece of advice I give is stop worrying about being an expert ally and just get to work show up, just do it. You'll learn on the job, right? And the way that you can do that as an organization is being connected with your local community groups. And we can help you do that because that's who we work with. So it really facilitates breaking down those bound, those barriers, I guess, and feeling connected and, and creating that really authentic, meaningful engagement with marginalized communities. Um, so Christopher, um, you completed a doctorate congratulations um and this was um around young people's literature and media um we're really keen can you tell us a bit more about it and also any any key findings or anything interesting that you found uh yeah absolutely thank you so much for asking so uh, my phd dissertation was in systemic oppression and the representation of systemic oppression in contemporary young people's uh, fantasy science fiction and supernatural novels so actually looking at fictional worlds fictional societies it does oppression exist in, in those worlds what does it look like um how is it different or similar to our own world. Um, and so I had to have a very strong understanding of systemic oppression to start with. So my research is really informed by um, black feminism specifically. So um, especially the work of Patricia Hill Collins, who's sort of a, a, a key leader in intersectionality theory really important. And her her theory of the matrix of domination really informed sort of the framework in which I was analyzing these books. So she talks about how systemic oppression is um, organized by institutions, managed by bureaucracy, um, justified through something called hegemony, which is basically our cultural belief systems, um, and then experienced on an inter interpersonal level on the everyday in our relationships with other people and in our, in our interactions with other people. So that was the framework from which I was analyzing literature. And then when I was studying fictional worlds, what I sort of discovered was um, the every, every context is different. So you could have, for example, a magical school 
Um, and there are lots, I'm not mentioning any in specifics. There are lots of magical schools. They are not a unique phenomenon. Um, and they could have, for example, um, you get graded on how well you can pronounce Latin, right? Now, that might not necessarily seem like an oppressive thing, but if you have a speech impediment, then you're not going to do very well at you know, voice-activated weaponry. <laughs> That's what spells are. Um, and so you're going to fail your class, right? And so your ability to succeed in a magical school for having a speech impediment, you you can succeed in a UK school with a speech impediment. You might struggle, but you can... That's not going to cause you to fail where you would in a magic school. So there's different mechanisms happening that are really specific. Um, and so what it meant was understanding the broader the broader stuff that you knew that's oppressive, even if the book isn't saying it's oppressive, even if the character with a speech impediment is comic relief. And we're not supposed to empathize with that character. We're not supposed to care about that character. We're supposed to laugh at that character. Okay, f like, fine, but actually that character is going to fail school and then lose out on like, career prospects and opportunities. And they're not real, so that's fine, but it actually being able to identify that's the problem that's happening here, even if we're not calling it out, even if we're not paying attention to it. That was the skill that I learned doing my PhD in literature. So now I work essentially as a consultant with a variety of different businesses and organizations. Through the All Equals Charter, I'm working with uh, people like from the charity sector, people in public bodies, people who are big, you know, multinational corporations, like across the board um, and, and very different industries. We've got like student accommodations, we've got um, office spaces, we've got um, tech companies, like quite a variety there. And they will bring, like, they sort of expect me to have that like industry level specific experience, right? And you see this with a lot of uh, EDI consultants. They'll be like, I'm an EDI consultant in finance, in media, in this, that, and other. And that's great. And you can provide, with that kind of level of specific experience, you can provide specific insights. For me, I'm providing an understanding of systemic oppression. That's my job. Um, Dr. Julie! <laughs> it's my gates. <laughs> Sorry. You monster! <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. I'm so glad that happened. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, you're you know, like I said, like, don't let me go on and on and on about this. Sorry. So we, we don't have to start all that again because Dan will be very clever and he'll like just make me make fun of me basically okay. and so That's carry on <laughs> so um industry specifics are great um and and the the professionals in those fields have something really wonderful to offer what i have to offer is uh, like an like actually that lack of bias that lack of that sort of third party perspective where i don't have the industry insight so i can't be like well that's fine because that's like industry standard no it's not fine it's oppressive right like that might be like my approach so um by studying systemic oppression in fictional worlds i can actually look at basically any industry any sector and not need to know the specifics because i know how oppression works outside of those specifics. So you might say like, although this is an oppressive thing, this is a common thing. Well, actually, you're used to it or you're expecting it. I'm coming in knowing how oppression works, right? So it just allows me that, that I get that that breadth, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So so what, give, give us a couple of- That's fascinating. It is, what, what, give us a flavor of a couple of your findings then. Uh, yeah, so one of the key findings that I had is the way that a narrative, um, sort of 
represent systemic oppression. Oppression is represented in literature whether the author means to or not. So a key finding, I guess, for me was author intention not relevant. This is not a critique of, oh, that author's a racist, or oh, that author's sexist. No, that author is a part of a patriarchal culture. That author is a part of a racist culture. They are writing a story. Whether, like, maybe they are racist. That's not the point of my work. So that's key. So it went to specific authors then. So it wasn't, so you weren't looking at different genres or, and you were specifically looking at authors. No, what I was looking, the, the reverse there. I was okay. looking at, I looked at over a hundred different fantasy and science fiction novels. Okay. So I like, didn't even know that there were that many. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's thousands. There? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I looked at, I looked at quite a lot and I only looked at 21st century. I only looked at recent. So. And they were, were they UK or were they? I, 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 I looked at, or, I looked no. at what, what academics call them, the Anglo-West. Right. So that would be the UK and Ireland, um, America, Canada, and Australia. Okay. So like quite, quite a breadth. Um, and then I'm so like, but one of my key findings was you can write a, a story that reinforces oppression accidentally. Right. You don't have to do it on purpose. The way that you don't point it out, the way that you don't make it a problem, the way that you don't critique it, just in the way the character experiences it, the way that the narrative shifts past it really subtly, like all of that just reinforces it as an immutable norm, as something that's just like part of life, like whether we, without thinking about it. Or you can write a book that does challenge it and does critique it. What I found is authors of color and diverse characters are much more likely to critique systemic oppression than not. Um, they don't have to. There are books written by white people with white characters that critique oppression. Absolutely there are. Um, but primarily diverse books do a better job of it. So that was like finding number one. And then key finding number two was we have traditions in literature. Like this is like a typical narrative structure of like, so we call most children's books a coming of age stories. So they're really naive and innocent at the beginning of the book. And then they learn and they grow by the end of the, the book, right? That's, that's your typical children's narrative. Well, the opportunity to learn and grow is often perceived as like, um, like an empowerment thing for that child, or uh, an opportunity to see the the strength and resilience of children. Well, for marginalized children, they don't get that empowerment. They don't get those opportunities. And so things like um, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, that anyone who knows literature will have heard of that. It's a very common way of thinking about um, those coming-of-age narratives, especially in the fantasy genre. Um, that, that structure works great for white men. Not so much for women of color, um, and not so much for queer people, um, and certainly not for marginalized children. Um, and so another thing that I found was our preconceptions of what is standard in literature as a field are also oppressive and also need to be unpacked and, and looked at. So I'm currently working on a, a, an academic book. Um, it's called the research monograph. That's the term for it, um, which will explore that in, in, in detail. Um, I'd love to be able to tell you that I have a contract for it. I'm this yeah. far away from getting a contract for it. So we're like, we're at the last stage of the proposal process. So like, hopefully, maybe by the time this podcast gets released, I'll have a contract for that book and then we'll be moving forward with that. And then I've also uh, written my own piece of fiction to, to explore that on the creative side and, and to really think about that um, as, a, as a writer. Um, and I finished that book and now I'm querying agents. So everything's sort of in the like, it's done. We're just trying to get that over the hump now, I guess. Excellent. So I was just wondering in terms of, because I, I always find it fascinating when Christopher talks about <laughs> um, his PhD. So passionate. Yeah. Um, 
but in kind of like real world like real world terms to put it in that sense Harsh. like um how what what do you think how do you connect that back in terms of what are those systemic oppression pieces what are those barriers like specifically because i'm wondering you know doesn't you know unconscious bias plays a huge part because you're saying that authors are not technically going to be racist or you know they might be (laughs) but they might not (laughs) but um what do you, what do you say in terms of is that part of unconscious bias? Is it more about the institutions that exist and the way that society is is made up that allows us to kind of foster those narratives? The reason I ask is because I have a myself having a young child and I, I speak heavily about representation because you know literature, novels, media, representation, all of it is just so massively important to be able to see yourself so you can aspire to be whatever that might be um and so I just wondered about that in terms of like because you specifically looked at literature and I was just interested in that bit yeah I really appreciate that and I think thank thank you for the question because it reminded me of my number one fighting which I somehow forgot to mention is um the field of literature the social justice work that's done in the field of literature is very concerned with the representation of diverse characters and rightly so like we should be prioritizing diverse authors and diverse characters and, and and focusing on that In addition to that, we also need to be thinking about the representation of systemic oppression. So, to answer your question, sometimes it's unconscious bias when we're thinking about the representation of diverse characters. A white author is writing, a person of color as a character, they've got some racial stereotypes in there, Um, that's maybe unconscious bias, they haven't thought this through well enough. So that absolutely can come in. But some of it is a systemic thing. So, for example, you're writing that fantasy school, that magic school, um, and you have grades as part of that. That's just you knowing what a school is and and not really thinking critically about how might you do school differently. Maybe Mm. you do a school without grades. What does that look like? You're writing a fantasy world. You can do whatever you want, right? So the way that we unquestionably reproduce mechanisms of oppression. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that the grades are are, are always oppressive, but they can be. And so um, one of the the things that, uh, actually the chapter that I finished most recently in, in rewriting this uh, work into a monograph was um, looking at bureaucratic mechanisms. So things like admin forms, right? So do, does your admin forms have all gender markers on it? Does it have um, all different types of titles on it? Um, does it allow for all kinds of like uh, ethnicities, et cetera, et cetera? Those, those are real world applications. In one of the books I studied, uh, the admin form didn't allow for a character to to fit in two boxes. They, it was a very much like a, a magical society that puts people in specific categories, and this character didn't fit into those categories, and now she's administratively being positioned in one box. And we know in the real world that that actually is quite harmful. Um, and so it's an opportunity with that book to be thinking about, all right, how does admin actually, just like forms, paperwork, actually really limit and create barriers for marginalized communities. And the, and there was all kinds of things. How do hierarchies of supervision limit voice? The character in the book had very little autonomy and voice because their teachers were in charge. Great, how do we apply that to the real world? Well, how do we make sure our students, our, you know, our, our staff, etc., have a voice, can push back against authority and say, actually, that decision hurts me or it causes these problems for me. Can we find a new solution? The character in the book didn't have that opportunity. So it really then works to emphasize how unfair that is. The book that I, in question, worked really well to question systemic oppression by emphasizing and highlighting just how 
um, disenfranchised and disempowered the main character was through specific bureaucratic mechanisms that you can then reflect on as a reader and go, hang on a minute, like, um, having, having a, a forms of punishment that completely cut out all conversation um, is actually really detrimental and really harmful. Having forms of punishment that um, humiliate you in front of your peers is psychologically very damaging. And so for the main character, she gets paraded on a spit throughout the magical school. For you in the workplace, being called out by your boss in front of the team is just as humiliating and just as disempowering and oppressive. So think... You know, you're able to connect those dots, if that makes sense. I think that's that's a really great explanation um, and a, a sort of a um, comparison with the real world. Definitely. Thank you. So um, it's been a really fabulous discussion. Um, we ask, as you know, we ask all of our guests um, one final question, and that is around your top tip for an inclusive action so we say inclusion is an action you don't it doesn't we don't get more inclusive just by doing nothing it's not about talking it's about doing things so um, I'll come to both of you uh, what would you want our listeners to take away from this as an action um, other than signing up for the all equals charter um, other than that maybe think about what your goals are right why are you having an inclusive organization why are you having diverse like hiring practices what are you trying to achieve and it should be to like overcome systemic oppression to push back against systemic oppression so then how are your practices doing that so like just take a minute to reflect on what are our goals and how are we how and it should like are they the right goals and then how do we achieve that that long-term end game excellent thank you um i think from my perspective it would be about creating space um so take a moment to step back and consider we all have our privileges all of us um some more than others um but we all do and so taking that step back and considering what are those privileges and what does that bring into the workplace well how do i manifest that whether that's leadership and whether that's not leadership but take a step back and consider that and then think about how do we create space because that is really ultimately what we really need to be doing and and kind of pushing forward in terms of equality, diversity, inclusion is to create space and know that it's okay to create space um, and nobody's going to be losing out. We are all actually going to massively benefit from it because the more diversity you have, the more in innovation you have, the more productivity all of it um is linked to that so i think yeah just my top tip would be take a step back reflect think about what provision you bring and how can you create space they are brilliant top tips and what a treat for us to have not one but two guests with us this week um thank you so much for joining um joining us and just the kind of uh, um, the, the conversation has been brilliant i feel like we could have been sat here for ages <laughs> talking about talking about some of this so thank you so much thank you it's yeah. been a real pleasure to be here really really appreciate the opportunity yeah thank you so much for bringing us on it's been a great great chance to meet you both as well you can find us on twitter our handles are in the show notes below and if you've liked what you've heard please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically thanks for listening <laughs>